This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Guilty Conscience. As always, Nate Carden here with David Farhat, Stefan Victor. Mon is still out on leave, so we're joined by Maite Quinn, who is uh, one of our associates in our D.C. office, going to serve as guest host today, as well as Alex Jupp and James Anderson, two of our U.K. colleagues. Tell us a little bit about your practices, and then we'll jump into our topic today, which is going to be the pillars and the U.K. Alex, do you want to go first? Happy to. Hi, everyone. Alex Jupp. I'm a U.K. tax partner based in London. My practice is fundamentally concerned with anything to do with multinationals, um, whether that's on the deal front, on the uh, disputes front, on the advisory front. That's what I do. That's what I live and breathe. So this uh, particular topic is, uh, is, is absolutely on point for me. And this is James. I similarly have a cross-border practice, although I probably would say I focus more on private capital rather than public capital. But as with Alex, um, very much affected by these delightful pillars. Well, all six of our regular listeners know what I think of the pillars, and uh, so we don't need to rehash that. But one thing I have noticed is that we hear a lot about it in the U.S. We hear a lot about what's going on in the European Union. But Alex and James, where does the U.K. stand with respect to the pillars? So the pillar two answer actually in the U.K. is much easier than the pillar one answer. Pillar two, we have actual legislation draft published now for consultation it runs to a paltry 116 pages. The explanatory notes are as helpful as ever. And that is only that only includes the income inclusion rule. So uh, anything else is not out there yet, although the consultation that the revenue um, published and indeed the responses uh, do suggest that the under-tax payment rule uh, and indeed potentially the, the minimum domestic tax uh, are still on the cards as far as the revenue uh, as far as the revenue is concerned, timing-wise, um, proposed implementation has slipped slightly uh, by about um, six months or so to accounting periods starting uh, after the end of December 2023. So in practice, 24 onwards for uh, for, for uh, in-scope uh, UK-related uh, multinationals. What's motivating the UK to be the first mover in Pillar 2? Or maybe a better way to put it, why are you the way you are? <laughs> <laughs> We're the good pupils in school. This has always been uh, true. I think we tend to gold plate things. When we were in the European Union, we were famous for fighting directives tooth and nail all the way through the European Parliament, the Commission. We hated a lot of the stuff. But I guess because we would see ourselves as advocates of the rule of law, at uh, the moment the directive uh, or, 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 or anything else uh, became mandated, we set about triple gold plating it, uh, Mighty. So I think we've got a tradition in the Treasury, and as Alex said, it's, it's been seen in the, the massive drafting of, of the Pillar 2 bill, is to go out there first and strong uh, and hope everyone catches up. And I use the word hope deliberately. 
So a couple hundred years ago, we decided that we didn't like the way you ran things and and broke away. Uh, You then decided the Europeans didn't like the way uh, they ran things. So you broke away. So some of our listeners may not exactly understand what has to happen in order for this to become law in the UK. What's the next step? Um, Well, the next step for the the Pillar 2 legislation is inclusion, formal inclusion as part of the draft finance bill, uh, which comes out early autumn time. That then gets goes through a number of readings in Parliament in both the junior and the senior houses of uh, Parliament, and then gets passed with royal assent at some point during the course of usually June or July of next year. Once the policy decision has been has been taken, it tends to be a fairly streamlined process. I, it's very difficult to get the policymakers to change their minds. So, Alex, quick question. Given that the UK has started this sprint, what happens along this sprint if the whole thing falls apart on the OECD side? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, I mean, the UK so far has not addressed that at all, to my knowledge, in any of the in any of the papers. It would be an interesting question to put to the Treasury officials at the next conference that that we go to. I don't see them giving anything other than a "we're going to do it anyway" answer. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is cutting off their noses to spite their faces is entirely possible, but I don't. Uh, I, I don't at the moment see that there would be a, a change of direction by the uh, by the Treasury unless something you know, pretty pretty significant were to were to take place. The Europeans seem to be fairly bent on getting something through. Timing might be would be the main issue there, I suspect, and then who knows whether they'll start to uh, rethink whether unanimity is really the uh, the requisite uh, threshold for tax related changes. So on that point, we've had the conversation on the U.S. side, uh, basically saying, "What if everyone else gets there and we don't?" So, kind of the opposite question to you guys: What if the U.K. gets there and everyone else doesn't? What does that kind of mean? I don't think anyone's modelled that, to be honest. I think their general working assumption seems to be that some mm-hmm. will will get across the line and will you know, follow the follow the commitments to to implement. Whether that includes the US or not is uh, a, a subject of a much debated subject amongst you guys and many others, of course. I struggle to see that at least some of the European jurisdictions would not. Go it alone, for instance, if the directive were to fail. I was going to say that I think there would be quite a lot of egg on face in Europe if Britain, having left the European Union, goes ahead and implements something which the European Parliament and the Commission are very strongly in favour of, and the Europeans don't. So I agree with Alex 100% that you'd see the bigger nations, certainly. I mean, Italy won't have a government for about the next four years, so they probably won't be able to, but... France and Germany probably could. I think you'd find countries like Ireland and Hungary happily lagging. So I do think that the independent approach would would prevail. But it's a nightmare. I mean, David, if you think about it, we we obviously at Scandon do a lot of M&A. And can you imagine if you're a UK headquartered business and you're in scope, or or you might be actually on the fringes of being in scope as the UK uh, has posited it, and you're having to figure out an acquisition which you want to make over the next year, two, three, you know, clearly your bank is trying to model the value, the accretive value of that target. 
And you don't know a few things. One is, is that entity going to be in a jurisdiction where rules have been passed uh, on pillar two? So, you know, you don't know what the ETR of the actual target might be. Will it be effectively tipping you over the threshold? Will there be any adjustment in the local jurisdiction's rules to allow it to be compliant with pillar two? So it's a pretty messy environment if you're a UK MNE, UK headquartered MNE, and let's face it, there aren't <laughs> that many of them that aren't owned by the US or China. But um, the, there are those entities that are probably struggling a little bit to think through the post-tax impact in jurisdictions which may or may not introduce pillar two. So I have a question about the process. Uh, can EU jurisdictions move independently regarding pillar two, or must the EU agree unanimously? They could implement their own domestic rules if they if they wanted to. There's nothing to stop them doing that. The whole reason that unanimity is required to implement a EU-wide new set of tax-related rules is fiscal sovereignty, right? So each jurisdiction has to make the positive choice to join in if they want to implement their own rules. It's perfectly open to them to do so. Yeah. Help me understand the relationship between that and you know, what once upon a time at least was called uh, – free movement of capital within the European Union, because yeah. it makes some sense to say that they're still separate countries. But on the other hand, I, I thought there were meaningful limitations on the ability of one country to effectively tax the operations of a company that chooses to set up in another country, which I think is basically what Pillar 2 would do. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. I mean, if if um, if you do have independent action, and you have countries trying to move. This is probably why they wanted the directive, to be honest. But if you have to try, countries trying to move unilaterally to implement, you've got the four freedoms of the European Union to consider, including the one you mentioned. And you've got, at the same time, a very vigilant commission and a pretty aggressive court. You get France and Germany trying to implement, and then countries that haven't maybe seen as giving state aid subsidies, or France and Germany in their domestic rules start to look at how to define things like qualified refundable tax credits, which are a crucial element of Pillar 2, as you know, to talk about whether the right rate is, is applied or not. And there's a challenge by another country saying, well, their choice of QRTCs were uh, unlawful aid. So I think it's a total mess. But uh, I come back to the point, I think we all agree, it would be very embarrassing if the UK managed to pass this and, and the European Union did nothing, even on an independent country basis. So, James, if I'm following, you're saying no matter what happens, there's a good chance there's chaos? <laughs> yeah. And actually, <laughs> now you said chaos. I think I just wanted to tease out one thing about the whole pillar endeavor, pillar one and pillar two. I used to run the 400 meters at school and I hated it. And the reason I hated it was... You can run 200 meters quite well. And then the, th the third hundred is just about doable. But the last hundred meters, as you get closer and closer to the finishing line, it gets longer and longer. And I think that's what's happening with this pillar process, which is, and you, you've seen it in the business committee that advises the OECD. As you get closer and closer to the date of implementation, more and more people are thinking, hey, we actually have to think about this stuff. It's going to happen. And the more people think about it, the more problems you discover with it. And I think the word chaos is is a good one. Leaving aside political travails of other countries like the US, I just think if you look at things like M&A, compliance, teams building in M&E's 
you know, it's hard enough to hire tax professionals without having a sudden demand mm-hmm. for five extra people to monitor the pillars. I start asking questions at the start of the running. So I don't need to get to that last 400 before I start asking real questions about what I'm doing. But I I can relate. To keep with the running analogy. So as the deadline approaches and more hurdles crop up, are those hurdles more political challenges or are they technical issues that need to be ironed out? I mean, you've introduced hurdles. This wasn't a 400 meter hurdle race, but uh, you've made it worse, Stefan. (laughs) (laughs) Leaving aside politics, I just, you know, I don't know if anyone's read the letter that the committee, uh, which represents business at the OECD, published earlier this year, but they worked through all the different problems. Uh, and this is some, this is a committee which the OECD, you know, supports and convenes. So uh, if you, if you work through all the detail there, uh, you get, you get the sense that the, the OECD is going to hear great policy guys, but you've got an awful lot <laughs> work to do. They even flagged inconsistencies with the objectives. They, they spotted in the model rules that there's, the objectives aren't even being met. Then you've got the Global South kicking in and saying that the amount A calculation on Pillar 1 might be disrespectful to them. And there's a whole bunch of UN uh, committees meeting to, to produce technical concerns. So I, I just think this, this, this really toxic mix of politics, global recession, um, EU problems, threat of litigation, companies uh, just not able to to cope i think it does i don't think it threatens the existence of the project but i think it definitely puts it back one two three years and in the meantime you have well chaos again you have some jurisdictions that have have implemented let's say they managed to implement pillar one others which don't and which bring in their friendly dsts again there's never going to be a perfect world where everyone has pillar one or no one has pillar one i think where does Pillar 1 stand in the UK? We we started with Pillar 2 because I think most people view it as at least uh, a little bit more on the horizon. But how are you thinking about Pillar 1 over there? There is, in theory, a um, policy-level commitment to, to implement Pillar 1 in the form that the OECD recommends, right? There's nothing out there in terms of you know, active consultations as yet, and I think that's probably because the theory at least is that this comes through a a, a multilateral instrument that uh, that folks can folks can sign up to i have not heard any suggestion whatsoever of if there is a pillar one that the uk will not sign up to it if you view pillar one as a replacement for dsts how is the dst viewed and you know, the various other similar taxes that the uk has uh, decided to implement are those politically popular will people be happy to see them go will they go many questions where do those stand i don't think um it really re- features on the radar i mean dst orip which i know you know about um dpt you know all these weird and wonderful attempts by the UK to catch up with Germany, which introduced its own versions several decades ago, they don't seem to feature in the, I mean, we've got a current debate going on between two pretty hopeless candidates to be the leader of this country. And and no one mentions is these kind of taxes, which are revenue based and quite potentially valuable. Um, no one talks about those. They're talking about cost of living crisis. They're talking about at, the, at best, corporation tax rates. So I don't see it getting political support or, or negativity either way. 
And so I guess there isn't really a political discussion around those. My, my hunch, and I, I'm interested in what Alex has to say here, is that the UK's sitting happy with its own DST and we'll just rock on. I don't think it will be pressurising um, the OECD to get on with it and, and get the treaty out there, although obviously it, it hopes it will. I think it's the, the treaty is looking to be signed or available for signature 20, during 2023. Yeah, I agree with that. I would love for there to be a huge lobby, just moving off DST and moving on to DPT for a second. I would lo- love for there to be a huge lobbying effort to say, if you bring in Pillar 1, can you get rid of DPT? That would be fantastic. In theory, you, you should be able to do that, right? But of course, DPT doesn't only apply to the multinational, to the, to the, to the in-scope multinationals within Pillar 1. So then would you, need, would you need DPT to come in for all the rest, or do you just keep it for everyone? I suspect you end up keeping it just for everyone. But then presumably none of that, none of the DPT amounts fall within any of the carve-outs or exclusions. So you get the double taxation, um, then you have to resolve all of that through the dispute resolution mechanisms and it gets it gets frightfully complicated quite quickly we're talking about all this chaos and all these elements that can cause confusion as if we don't have enough already how are we to kind of maneuver all of this as advisors and and, and taxpayers something we've talked about on the podcast in the past it seems that um jurisdictions are are falling out of love with the treaty system and falling out of love of the way we used to do things, right? The arm's length standard seems to be not cutting it anymore. How do we deal with all of these chaos, all of this chaos where you have different jurisdictions at different levels of implementations for the pillars, different DPTs, DSTs, and other kinds of taxes, political issues, you've got the economic issues. How do we navigate that? What do we think about? What's a practical strategy to try to make it till we get to some sanity so if you're asking us as advisors i think you have to pick which role you want to play with your client i think the the, there's there's sort of three roles as i see it one is the one that i think we as lawyers are less well suited to which is getting helping multinationals get their compliance game together and you know that's going to be um, more, I would say, down to the big four and down to the uh, modelers. But but I suppose we can help and we do think about how a multinational would go about assessing its exposure around the world under Pillar 2, less so Pillar 1, but but because um, it's quite specific. But, I mean, Pillar 2, you can have conversations with your clients, but I think there's a whole compliance game which, which we're aware of clients now having to think about has to be in place within the next couple of years. The second... And third roles, I think, are more meaningful, which is trying to spot gremlins in the in the proposals and, and just flagging them up early. I mean, the whole defer. I don't know how much you guys have gone into this, but there's a whole deferred tax nightmare there, particularly where the deferred taxes rules, the model rules that were published last December, discuss how they're going to be either considered when effect- when considering the effective rate, or brought back into tax at the fifteen percent. I mean that to me, is an absolute disaster show in the drafting. And and you can help with the lobbying, but equally you can help talk to your clients and say, look, I think you should be thinking about this. Or, or any reorganizations you're doing, these are the pointers really to, to have on your radar as, as relevant within the next few years. The third thing is a much more interesting, I suppose, in day-to-day uh, live issue, which is the deals we're doing. I'm sitting quite smug thinking about this when talking to funds because 
funds seem to be getting a better ride than multinationals. There's no consolidation across different portfolio companies under under a fund. And as you probably know, regulated funds are, are subject to quite a good carve out now from pillar two. But if you're talking to a multinational that doesn't have that and they're in scope, then you have got to look at contractual uh, protections, JV documentation, what happens when pillar two does come in. I've mentioned deferred tax liabilities and, and deferred tax assets. What One of the, the, the joyous things that uh, the UK in its great wisdom has done in its proposal is, I don't know if you've spotted this, but um, it's made UK entities jointly liable for any of the other taxes that are imposed abroad, UTPR, IAR, debts that are charged for uh, foreign entities. So how, how do you, you know, draft for that? How do you consider in a, in a tax covenant, if your target is such an entity and then joins your group, how are you going to allocate risk where the vending jurisdiction doesn't have a UTPR liability initially or has a different version of it? I mean, there's a whole bunch of, I mean, I, I hate to say mundane because they're so difficult, but they're incredibly now problems because you might be negotiating a deal which the acquisition is going to still be getting integrated in a year, two, three times. So those second and third areas, I think the problems flagging and the drafting of any tax covenants and JV documentation in a world where pillar two is a reality. I think those are, those are how an, I as an advisor would be addressing it. But Alex, why don't you weigh in and see how you're playing this one? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's a unfortunately topic that we all need to think about as part of the our day-to-day lives now whether whether it comes into play or not right mm-hmm. you can't go about thinking about how to structure a a deal or restructure a multinational group without at least taking into account the knowable stuff you just have to do that but it's funny that you all talk about it as something mundane or an unfortunate reality because for me as a young practitioner i'm thinking this is amazing i get to you know, draft some new language <laughs> and some some things that people, you know, are... Yeah, And so, it's, it's, you know, this yeah. is my language. I get to yeah, own yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, No, it's fair, Mighty. And I, look, I should have said quotidian, um, yeah. day-to-day, I would say, not mundane, as in it's our bread and butter. But I, I guess you're right. It's quite exciting bread and butter, especially for a young practitioner like you uh, coming into this, you know, at the beginning, right? I mean, the world that you're seeing form we're at the beginning of a formation of a new universe and absolutely you should be excited by it. I don't mean to downplay that, but it's a chance for people like Mighty you and your peers to shine. I mean, if you can get out ahead of the curve, knowing the rules better because everyone else is being lazy and they're waiting for this to happen. I mean, if you can get out there, like private equity groups, they want to know, does it give them a pricing advantage because they don't have to worry about the application, arguably of pillar two, can they bid better? than a multinational. That's a great conversation to have. And if you're distinguishing yourself that way by having that conversation or talking about who they might sell to, that might change because they might not be able to sell to a group which is going to take them over the threshold, 750 million euros a year set revenue. You know, these are great conversations to be having with your clients and you'd you'd look proactive and foresightful. I think also thinking about some other practice areas in which uh, the rules can have different impacts. I work a lot with insurance companies 
And there's certain considerations that are going to be affecting insurance companies differently than some other kinds of companies. And like you're saying, it's it's that being proactive, looking at how the rules may be affecting them differently and whether you want to be the one reaching out and asking about lobbying or, you know, whatever it is. Obviously, maybe not for the U.S. because <laughs> we're not loving these anyway. But I don't know. It's, it's, for me, it's a very interesting time to be to be a young, young attorney. And for my younger listeners, there's um, this thing that's popping up in my head. I don't want peace. I want problems. And maybe Stefan's <laughs> the one that knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, every time we mention chaos on the podcast, all the tax partners start to, to get a little grin on their face because that's, you know, that's how we get not our work. Me. I'm broken. <laughs> I need peace. I need peace, not problems. It's all about perspective, where, where, where you are on the on the path. <laughs> One question, though, in the, the, the peace, not problems vein is what about the peacemakers? And by that, I mean the competent authority folks that are at least nominally charged with resolving these kinds of disputes. We're praying for them, Nate. We're praying for them. Every day. But as we well know, there are certain elements of, of UK taxation that uh, revenue believes are not subject to competent authority. There are some that shall remain nameless on the US side that also people believe are compatible with US treaties, but maybe not subject to competent authority negotiation. Trying to find my mute button. <laughs> what do you think, Alex and James, happens on the treaty front if the UK, as seems not crazy right now, goes forward with Pillar 2 while the rest of the world lags behind? I suspect that the the UTPR might get delayed even even further beyond the current current schedule, right? We don't even have the draft legislation out yet. Yes, the UK said that the UTPR would be coming in. But the reality is that you can easily implement the various bits of it in a relatively piecemeal fashion. And you, know, you don't necessarily even have to implement the UTPR. The the jurisdictions that would care about the that would care about the UTPR, they may or may not be those with which we have solid treaty relationships anyway, right? So maybe it's a question of thinking, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, and in the meantime, we have plenty of other things to be getting on with anyway. suppose that depends on what you think of the treaty relationship with the United States. Uh, but in all events, clearly they're going to have things that they're going to have to wrestle with. Everybody has to model this out. It's a great time for new advisors who are trying to figure out what's going to be market practice. But if I'm sitting out there as a head of tax at a UK multinational looking at this landscape, wondering if my country is going to put me at a disadvantage relative to private capital, relative to companies that are headquartered elsewhere. What is the short version of the advice to that UK multinational? Well, the short version is lobby for delay, long grass. There could be a new government within the next two or three years, literally a new government, not just another version of the Conservative Party, and it will get slow-tracked as a result because there'll be other constitutional crises on the horizon. That would be my short version of the advice. I can't think a UK group would want this or welcome it or see, see this as an advantage to doing if 
the rest of the world isn't doing it. I would slightly tongue-in-cheek say this is inevitable in the UK, so you've got to go and convince everyone else to do it. So you you take you take our navy and you take the navy to the to the doors of uh, <laughs> of, of the reticence. Let's say <laughs> that didn't work out too well for you all way back when. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't be the it, first it, time. It worked okay for a while, right? There's going to have to be a, a degree of consensus that that folks come to here. I mean, it's it it can't work otherwise. If the nations of the world, or some of the nations of the world at least didn't think that there would be a sufficient degree of consensus why would they have bothered to go through all the pain with the OECD and signing up to the all of the inclusive framework um papers that have come out it feels odd to me that folks would go along most folks let's say would go along with the hassle of go, of, of, of doing all of that without a, a concrete intention of doing something now whether that something is you know, matches up with what everyone else is doing. Who knows? Yeah, just to be clear, I, I, I don't mind waiting until the rest of the world's ready. I do think a multinational wouldn't want to be just subject to new UK domestic tax rules, which yeah. prioritise UK being the best boy or girl in the, in the class. Last question. If you could tell the designers of Pillar 1 or Pillar 2, take your pick, one thing to change or improve based on what you've seen happen in the UK and your effort to design the rules, what would you tell them? Pillar one to me needs a lot more work on working out, to me, the, 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 the tracking. I'd like to focus a lot more on the IP address problem. I think I would definitely want to improve where, how the allocate, because I see this as just a source of massive dispute until the end of time working out the allocation keys to different markets, especially markets where, say in Africa, where they claim greater allocations. I think we need to spend a lot more time on designing that tracking approach and, and being a bit more tech savvy about how companies can gather the right data for market activity. That's where I think it's worth spending a lot of more time and improvement, actually, if Pillar 1 is going to work properly. Yeah, my, my immediate reaction is don't do it, but <laughs> maybe that's not uh, maybe that's not viable anymore that's one thing to change alex james <laughs> thanks for joining my tape thanks for joining as a guest host may your future be filled with problems not peace <laughs> <laughs> to everyone out there uh, my husband is not happy that you just said <laughs> to everyone uh, may, may your future be filled with work problems and not work peace <laughs> to everyone out there thanks for listening take care Thanks, all. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 